Hi, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Jenny Bennett. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Jenny Bennett is a fourth generation director, actor, and educator. Her recent directing includes Richard III, Henry VI, Part Three. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing, King Lear, The Winter's Tale, and all of those were at the Blackfriars Playhouse at the American Shakespeare Center. She's also done The Three Musketeers and Henry V at the Classical Theater of Harlem, where she is an artistic associate, and Much Ado at the Titan Theater Company. In Kaohsiung, Taiwan, Jenny founded a theater company and collaborated with international artists for seven years. Taiwan directing includes Macbeth, Dangerous Liaisons, otherwise known as Weishan Guangxi, Romeo and Juliet, Into the Woods, and As You Like It. Jenny's on the faculty of AMDA, New York, the M- um, and she has an MFA from the University of Delaware and a BA from University of Virginia. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Um, so, Jenny, I want to hear about why you're, like, who in your family makes you a fourth-generation director? <laughs> well, you know what? It's all the ladies. My um, my great-grandmother, Teresa, was a child star in vaudeville, hilariously. Went on, <laughs> like, she toured a vaudeville circuit and all of that. There's a, there's a great old family story that is probably true about um, <laughs> being on a, um, the same circuit with, like, William Jennings Bryan and all of that stuff. Uh, anyway, so she came home from the vaudeville thing and founded the family theater. Um, in the apple orchard and um, the, it was called Willoway Repertory Theater uh, founded that in the late uh, mid 40s um, my grandmother Celia Merrill Turner uh, presided over that theater um, my mother was a theater educator and director Robin Bennett um, and then there's Maud <laughs> no there's me <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's a sort of our family disease. So you were doomed. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I, and my mom, God bless her, she tried so hard. She really wanted me to be, you know, president or an astronaut. <laughs> um, but alas, I, I, I did go on to um, major in in theater, and you know. How did all that come about? How did you make the decision to major in theater? Do you? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, you know, try as she might to keep me away from stuff. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Georgia, and at the time, there was the one high school. There were, by the time I was in high school, there were two, but, um, and my mom was the theater teacher there to, you know, have the job that paid for the raising of the children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, and you know, and I was I was always around it. I grew up on a cot in the back of the theater, oh. a single mom, and right. you know, I've been helping people get off books since I was knee high to a grasshopper, and um, uh, and I, so I've always basically I've always been in rehearsal rooms. Were you always a director, or did you start out acting? No, you know what? I've always been a multiply interested theater maker for sure, and part of that was because, you know. Um, I was always in some sort of supporting role on the outside when my mom was the head of the high school program. You know, I did all the props. I lived my life in this little rebar cage 12 feet (laughs) over the floor running a Klieg Pack 9 light board, you know, from when I was 12. Um, And and, uh, for undergraduate school at the University of Virginia, it was really great. It was a a BA. and, um, And then after I finished grad school... 
participated as an actor, but also sort of an actor manager model, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, A a model I'm quite fond of, actually, um, that uh, for for this, for for a couple of different projects, something that happened here in New York and then did something in in California. Um, And then I up and moved to Taiwan about a year and a half or so after I finished grad school. Yeah, how did that happen? Well, I was in this production of Hamlet. Um, with a company called the American Shakespeare Theatre Company, I believe is what they called it, um, which was produced and directed by previous graduates of the Delaware MFA program. Right. And my friend Ty Jones, who is he's the producing artistic director at the Classical Theatre of Harlem. We've um, interviewed him. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome, right? He's yeah, just he's fantastic. Beat. The bee's knees and the cat's pajamas. He uh, he played Hamlet in that, and that whole production of Hamlet was a tour to Taiwan, and it was just you know it was like a two week gig, and it was my first time in a culture so different from my culture of origin, and I got really interested in that. I got interested in being illiterate. I got interested in the nature the essence of communication and language. And I'm, um, and so I decided to up and move there just for a year, uh, and it turned into seven. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, I have to say, having been there for two weeks, the courage it, ta- it must have taken for you to just say, hey, I'm staying, is, is immense uh, because it is such a different world. Ah, youth, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was- I was 29, and uh, you know, and I did. I up and moved there seven weeks after we got back from tour. After we got back to New York, I moved there seven weeks later, just for a year, with a suitcase. I'd uh, met some people and stuff. It's like, well, hey, New York will always be here. Well, it's certainly. I mean, I, I spent two weeks in Taiwan teaching, and it's a <laughs> it's a vibrant theater community. I mean, it, they are really into it. It's great. Yeah, it it really is. Now, this was way back at. Way back at the turn of the 21st century, I was <laughs> uh, So it was, you know, 18 years ago that I moved there, and I was there for seven years. Um, and did a lot of collaborating with international artists. We, you know, started a theater company, produced full-length shows. And when, when we started, we were, uh, my business partner was a, a martial artist, and I was the theater artist. And then we ended up with this hybrid sort of multifaceted arts organization but when we started um we would rehearse in uh, dance clubs off hours uh, <laughs> this this dance club called dna run by my friend dermo uh who very kindly let us use his big space we you know built that up and rented a theater to perform it our first show was dangerous liaison uh, dangerous liaisons that i adapted from um the novel and that we did in english and mandarin Again, investigating that that language thing um, to discover what is the essence of communication, and you know, I guess the short the short version of what I discovered was if two people are committed to communicating, no matter what languages they speak, then you know, communication happens. And that's interesting. Um, and did you find that the the theatrical vocabulary helped with that? Absolutely, absolutely. What, what I, I would use theater as a way also of training 
language acquisition. So I taught at Shuda Kuji Dasui, the Shuda University, just outside of Kaohsiung. Hi, Kaohsiung, if anybody listens. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, for example, that Romeo and Juliet, I did it at the university, did it in Shakespeare's English, and then also parts of it were in Chinese. It's actually kind of interesting because I had divided it up. I'd set it in Taiwan in 1980, late 70s. Like, well, okay, great. So what was happening then was, you know, after the Kuomintang came over in 49 and the Republic of China came to Taiwan after the communists took over the mainland, uh, they took over Taiwan. And um, one of the things that they did was that they made speaking Taiwanese illegal and make uh, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, the official language. So I'm like, okay, well, that was going on. So at home like say the nurse talking to Juliet and you know maybe the the friar talking to Romeo they would speak in you know home language in Taiwanese um and maybe the servants talking to each other would speak in Taiwanese um but then the official language with the prince and everything on the street and all of that would be Mandarin mm. and then the young people would speak to each other in English uh to each other and in soliloquy Mm. And I was just interested in investigating the story of language in that way. But then I got in a little trouble. Because, <laughs> because so the way I, that was going to manifest in the first scene, when Peter and, what's his name, Samson, is that it? Yes, Samson. Are talking to each other yeah. uh, about the colliers and those hilarious 400-year-old jokes about coals and things. Yeah. Uh, that start the play. I was having them speak to each other in Taiwanese. And then when the servants of the other house came out and they start speaking to each other with the biting of the thumb, I had them switch to Mandarin because you wouldn't speak to your enemy in a language that was not okay to speak. Um, but that turned out to be much too politically sensitive. Gotcha. And yeah, and so I just had them speak English. I figured, hey, they're young, so right. <laughs> but we, That's right. You know, we still <laughs> still kept um, still kept some Taiwanese in, you know, with the nurse and stuff. But it's really interesting. It's it's you know uh, the question of that Taiwanese identity and is something that that continues to be explored with passionate arguments on all sides that I have no business negotiating for sure. Um, but there were pl there's plenty of I had plenty of students that didn't speak Taiwanese. Um, anyway, hmm. so finessed it wow. finessed it through there. But anyway, when we did English, we absolutely did. I had English as a second language learners speaking Shakespeare's English, and um, it's interesting because in some ways, like some of the ways that the grammar structure and rhetorical arguments can be a challenge for people new to Shakespeare who speak today's English as a native language. Mm -hmm. Some of those grammar patterns are a little more similar to how Mandarin functions, you know, like where verbs go and relationship. It's, it was less of a um, difficulty in some ways. It's fascinating. I, 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 wonder, I wonder what's preserved and what's lost uh, with the verse in particular. Like, for, for example, when I listen to... Moliere translated into English. I I don't speak very much French, but I feel like I feel like I have this overriding sense that I'm only getting a small fraction of what's in there to be enjoyed. 
Um, yes. And and I wonder what you, you know what your thoughts are about translating Shakespearean verse into a language that's so different. Well, you know what I I um. When in doubt, I check the youth. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, there were multiple translations. I do not. I am not fluent in Chinese. Um, there's, there's sort of an official, a long time. This is the official Chinese translation of Shakespeare. That is, from what I understand, a little more like a paraphrase, a little more like a transliteration, if that makes sense. Um, but then there's there's some newer ones, and I found a couple that I could, and the only way I knew that they were different was by looking at them on the page, and the official one is all, you know, block text, and this other one I found had jaggedy edges, like poetry does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ooh, hey, maybe that's a tip with the jaggedy edges, <laughs> and, uh, and so I... I dragooned a private student I had and I said okay read this out read this and then read this and tell me which is good and so she started with the official one she's like oh okay yeah 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 I get that and then I gave her the other one and she was like oh 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 that's so beautiful (laughs) so I I guess the answer things can be lost um, and that's why we have collaborators who are smarter than we are. <laughs> <laughs> do, con- do concepts like, um, you know, rhyme and verse sure. and meter translate sure. well? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it can be slightly different. And I think a good, when, when, when languages are so different, well, okay, it's kind of like traffic, right? I have a cultural predisposition for the right of way. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. think that's how we should drive. Uh, you know, in Kaohsiung, there's the, you know, there's like the way there is a, a sort of a chi to traffic and, you know, you, you keep going and you just thread in and whatever happens upstage of you is somebody else's problem. If you don't see it, it's not your doing. Uh, and while I could assert my cultural preference in that traffic, that would be kind of stupid because I would die. You know? <laughs> right. So I think that translating any verse from any language to another language, you can't, if, if you're, if you're going to assert iambic pentameter and, you know, that is structured to be a heartbeat of an English rhythm, uh, then you're, you probably are going to miss a little out. And if you can be open to, a verse structure that accomplishes in Chinese what iambic pentameter accomplishes in English, then I think you got, you know, I think you, I think that's money. Did you find that, so having had this experience in Taiwan, which you said you were there for seven years? Mm-hmm. Yep. From 2000 to 2007. And how has that informed your career upon your return to the States and, and, and your future intentions for your career? Oh, golly, in just about every way. Um, What I'd mentioned about my being curious about language and how we communicate and the essence of it drives everything that I do. I I also got an appreciation being a foreigner and um, relying oftentimes on my mime skills (laughs) to (laughs) live a day-to-day life. and then, you know, going to a couple of festivals, you know, I went to the Edinburgh Festival to see a bunch of stuff and came away with how powerful 
languageless, like spoken languageless plays can be. And so I, 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 t- I tend to be greatly influenced by other elements of various theater making and art that that I had the privilege to encounter while I lived in Taiwan. Uh, a spareness to the space. Um, there's this terrific Taiwanese theater dance company called Cloudgate. Yes, I, I've seen them. I've been to their theater. It's fantastic. Isn't it great? I don't know oh. if you... Did you get to see um, one of their my favorite pieces of theirs is called Cursive, where the inspiration for the dance is Chinese calligraphy. And in this dance, they physicalize the brush strokes. <laughs> for, mm. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, but it's just extraordinary. Um, uh, but, you know, the exposure to, to wonderful stuff like that has really influenced me for um, what's possible in a beautiful space that's mostly empty with a game, generous, powerful actor. And um, and I think that's one of the reasons I am an enormous fan of the American Shakespeare Center in the Blackfriars Playhouse, where the original staging conditions of Shakespeare pretty much are that. Um, those And all those plays, all of these plays were written for spaces like that, you know? Um, where it's, there where the there's globe, not a lot. Blackfriars. There, there isn't a lot. You know, there's the building and there's some props and there's actors and they're going to double. They're going to play a couple of different roles. Um, they did not have 55 actors to do Richard III, I'm sure. No. Um, and actual armies. And the plays are full of language about that. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Imagine when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hooves in the receiving earth and all of that. That, that we, in those staging conditions, you know, half of which I get from Shakespeare and maybe the other half from playing around in Taiwan. Um, we require the audience to imagine along with us. And so we're all bound together on the words of great plays being spoken with powerful actors, you know, right now, right now, right now, no matter what happened before we walked in the theater. And it just knocks my sock off, socks off. You know, it's the power of the word. So, Garrett, you're processing. I, you know, I'm thinking, I'm just, it's really exciting and important to be reminded of, of the other ways that we have of communicating that, that transcend the language. And, of course, this, this podcast focuses uh, on the text, but also the, uh, the myriad ways in which people bring Shakespeare's uh, words to life. And, some, and, and it's nice to be reminded that some of those ways ha- have, have less to do with the word and a lot more to do with the action. Well, and I tell you what, for me, the action, well, you suit the action to the word, the word to the action, yeah? It's mm-hmm. all of that action for me is, is sprung, rooted precisely, rhetorically, you know, emotionally in the text, in the words. Um, and and so I, I guess I have a taste that I developed for staging that that honors that, yeah, that I, I, I listen with my eyes and I look with my ears <laughs> and, um, and, and until we find out, oh, yeah, yeah that's it, that's it, that's it. And, and, and stay out of the way of the play and the actors by honoring very precisely 
the text of the play so that the play can show up. Well, that's that's <laughs> that's beautifully said, and maybe that maybe that um, is a nice place to cap it. Jenny Bennett, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation to have. It's been a delight. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.